Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Audio Issues interview. This time we're speaking with Matt Ross-Spang, studio engineer over at Sun Studios in Memphis. Thanks for joining us, Matt. You're welcome, buddy. Anytime. So I was at a great panel that you were a part of at the Potluck Conference about vocal production. You were there with Neil Capolino, Ross Hogarth, and Jonathan Pines. Yeah. So first of all, just let's talk about how cool Potluck is and give a big shout out to Craig Schumacher for putting it all together. Well, certainly, Craig Schumacher, everyone should be giving him a round of applause. I mean, to put on something of that size and that well done and, and so and being so fun, I, I know it's a, it takes up probably a lot of his life. And it's very stressful to get all of us pasty engineers out in the desert <laughs> uh, and, and I'll get to talk. But it's, it's, it's something I look forward to every year. I'm lucky enough to call some of these guys friends, but every time I get to hang out with Neil Capolino or Andrew Sheps or Van Power, these guys is just um, something I look forward to every year and something I just still can't believe I get to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's amazing getting to just walk up to these guys and, and just ask them questions that have been like burning on your mind for a while, you know? Yeah, and just gosh, I've been friends with Andrew and those guys now for a few years now, and just we're all so busy, we don't get to talk to each other. We have to make time kind of like this for this kind of stuff to see each other, and that's what's so cool. And B, you don't get to talk to your girlfriend or your parents about compressors and stuff. So to, to get that all out in like three days is good. We right. all get it. <laughs> no doubt about music and gear and audio. Mm-hmm. All right. So for someone who's been living in a cave since the microphone was invented, tell us a little bit about Sun Studios and how you got started in the industry. Sun Studio is probably the most famous studio in the whole world, I, I would say, even though I'm biased. Um <laughs> Sam Phillips was this amazing person. I, if anyone is interested in audio or music, if they don't know about Sun, they should A, start reading about it, and B, really check out Sam Phillips because he was a um, one-of-a-kind, unique individual. And he started Sun in 1950. It was an old three-room barbershop slash uh, bakery. And, uh, and then it was a um, – I think it was a, a radiator shop for a while. Anyways – he started in 1950, and, and this is in Memphis, Tennessee in the South in the 50s. And he quit his high-profile gig as a DJ slash engineer at the Peabody, which is our big hotel in town, at the, in the ballroom. He did live big band broadcasts over the radio. And it was a very, a very esteemed gig, and he left that to record predominantly black musicians in this little studio of his. Now, like I said, this is 1950, so this is kind of rare. Uh, a, people didn't start studios back then. And B, really didn't record black music like he was doing. And he sold a lot of these great records to VJ, RPM, and Chess. Mm-hmm. And he discovered guys like Ike Turner, Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, Little Walter, Little Milton, Junior Parker, Roscoe Gordon, all these great guys. And then um, he started recording some of the local music that was coming from around there as well. And that ended up being Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley. And he really produced and pulled out kind of the spirit and the um, performance and the emotionalism out of these guys, as opposed to just getting like a, a perfect take. Right. So a lot of those records have little boogers and stuff all over them, but they have they capture a feeling that you can't really get anywhere else. He also kind of really brought together uh, Slapback Echo like we know it. I mean, uh, you know, Les Paul was doing it, but Sam really kind of made a sound with it, I'd say. I was reading about, I think there was an article somewhere that you were talking about how those old Echo machines, the musicians didn't actually hear it until they 
came back into the control room. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you guys think 1950, this is all, Sam did all this at Sun in, within about nine years, from 1950 to 1959. After that, he, got, he had a lot more money. He was poor at the time when he started Sun, and then he was able to build a really amazing studio. And, of course, rec- recording technology had increased greatly by then. So he built a really high-tech studio in the 60s called Philips Recording Service, mm-hmm. which is actually still around today, and it's probably the second most magical place I've ever been to in my life. But, yeah, so if you think about 1950, uh, he had a RCA console. It had four microphone inputs, a mono output. So he had to mix live to a mono Ampex 350 machine. Or actually, a lot of the early blue stuff was done directly to disc. He cut it directly to a Presto lathe. And there's no headphones, there's no monitoring for the musicians. So they wouldn't hear it until it was done on the mono tape and played back on repro on the tape machine. And, and Sam had added echo in while they were cutting. So they couldn't hear any of that until playback. So what's different about it now? I also read that you brought that sort of sound back. So what's the difference between Sun Studios, let's say, what, 20 years ago as opposed to today? Well, the most amazing thing is that the building is still untouched. It's it's exactly how he left it acoustically and everything from the 50s. It, nowadays, it's a, a more, more of like a, a living museum, or like a tourist attraction during the day. We record at night starting at 630. Yeah. I've been there about 11 years. When I started interning there, it was a lot of stuff kind of from the 80s, gear-wise and everything. We had a Soundcraft TS-24 console, and we had like sonar. I think it was at, it was called uh, Vegas at the time. Then it became Sonar. That's what I learned on, and that's why I assisted there for a long time. I started assisting when I was uh, just just about seventeen, uh, sixteen or seventeen. Mm-hmm. And when I took over as head engineer, I was really in love with the old Sun Sound and the way they got those re- recordings. And they did that with four microphones, and we're doing stuff with sixteen microphones, and it doesn't sound as good to me. <laughs> You know, and so I want to really get back into that. Plus, I'm an idiot. Let's be honest. And uh, I want to get back into that stuff. And so I uh, uh, started locating all the original kind of 50s gear. And I had a lot of help from a lot of people. Mark Neal, who did great producer, did Black Keys Brothers and some other stuff, has a really great kind of period studio. And he's just as much as a Sun fanatic as I am. And all the old Sun guys really helped me out. And the Phillips family was a really big help as to what... Sam had in there because there's only like two or three pictures from that time period in the studio. There's no movies, and it's not like the Beatles where you can read a a huge book and find out what day George Harrison sneezed in Abbey Road C on a U87 <laughs> while eating shrimp. I mean, we don't have that kind of info that they have on the Beatles stuff. So it, it was really, it's really taken a long time, and I didn't want to put one piece in at a time here or there. So I kind of waited till I had everything up and running and, and figured out, and then we installed it all. Not very long ago, basically the beginning of this year, we installed it all and have been operating solely as that kind of way since this year but ever since i took over we've been kind of doing more old school even though i had 16 channels i only would use you know six or seven or Mm -hmm. so it's mostly it's mostly just limitations yeah just creating limitations for yourself doing a minimalistic type you know it's not necessary and minimalistic because there's actually i i don't know it's it can go both ways yes you can do like a very like we're only going to use four track but at the same time it can be the exact opposite of minimalistic because you've got so much going on at one time yeah now, some people could say cutting just a drum kit and then cutting just a bass drum. I mean, that can be, that's a very minimal thing to do, but having eight people going on at the same time with four microphones and trying to make that work mm-hmm. is. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you record. You do the straight recordings onto disc or onto tape. 
we have a few options. So I understand that most people don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to make everybody sound like 1953 because that's <laughs> not really the point of that gear. The point of that gear is to pull something out of you. And so I have a couple different options. I have an old, just like Sam, I have an old 1936 tube console, an RCA tube console. That's four microphone inputs uh, to a mono output. So if you want to come in and sound like Howlin' Wolf or do like a Elvis Presley Mystery Train or Blue Suede Shoes, that's certainly a good way to go. Right. And that's live to a mono Ampex or to the press delay or then, you know, either or both. I also have a little Studer console from the 60s on the side and I have a radar. I, got, I just got a Radar 6, which I am completely in love with. And I have a one-inch eight-track Studer 800 and a couple two-track studers and stuff and ampexes so there's a whole lot of options there kind of ranging from the the 1930s all the way to the 1970s but we kind of stopped there (laughs) (laughs) but i mean that's all the great stuff so you know i love big modern sound and records i love big drums i love all that stuff and we can we can do all of that at sun we're not limited to just making you sound like 19 i think it's funny to me how many people will come in and go oh yeah we want that lo-fi thing mm-hmm. well there's not there's not really anything lo-fi about it you know if you listen to a buddy holly record or elvis Presley mystery train man that thing jumps out of the speakers it doesn't sound like it was cut mm-hmm. you know through a walkie-talkie or anything so i think it's just it's a uh, but we I'm rambling because I forgot what the question was, but we can do, we can do anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that that's great. That's cool. So that's kind of a unique way to do it, and I kind of I just really appreciate this kind of different type of way, kind of a positioning. Like I doubt people come to Sun to get the, the like crazy New York or LA sound anyway. So it's kind of you position yourself to like this is the sort of stuff that we do, and we're really cool and good at it you know well you know it's funny you would think that but i actually had like a metal band in last week <laughs> and it certainly didn't want to sound like you know carl perkins <laughs> i had a punk band in a couple days before i people come to sun just because it's sun yeah and you know it's like people might go to abbey road and just plug in a drum machine in a midi keyboard and do spoken word stuff you know what i mean yeah. and that you're not getting like Abbey Road sound because it's you know it's all direct or whatever, but you're still you're getting the experience of that place. So I'm all about that. I mean, they came in and we we did most of it live, and I got out my baffles and we had I can't remember last time I had a Marshall half stack in there, but we made it work and it sounded really good and it sounded modern, you know. So uh, I'm up for anything. I like all all kinds of music. I like recording all different kinds of ways. Right. Um, I just know that we're we're kind of missing some of that. Certainly for Sun, it needed to have that option of being exactly like sun in the day yeah so one of the things you were mentioning at the panel was like you have to give all the bands that come in they kind of need be tourists for 20 minutes like instagram stuff and do like stuff like that yeah you just gotta let them i mean i think that goes for anywhere really it's just a little bit different at sun every time i was recording in a studio when i was first starting i would get nervous and need to like just want to kind of like calm down for a second before i jump right into i you know no one wants to jump right into something i think you got to ease people into it a little bit but certainly at sun instead of me having to like here's the lava lamp here's the (laughs) machine that kind of stuff it's more more like telling sun stories and letting them do all their weird social media and posting on Facebook and stuff that they're here and all that and all that fun stuff and then kind of letting them it's slowly kind of pushing them into getting into record mode but yeah sometimes they want to stay in that way too much like they're just wanting Instagram have to worrying about what filter to put their <laughs> selfie on and when it's like come on guys time to cut time to play yeah 
What's your approach to mic placement if you're trying to do uh, straight to tape or straight? I got you. You know, it doesn't really matter what we're going to or what we're doing. Uh, I I view microphone placement as everything. If you come and want to see me EQ something, you're going to have to wait a while. I I don't really do a lot of EQing. Mm -hmm. So another important thing that I probably should mention for all the gearheads is Sam did all those recordings at Sun, those legendary things. He had no equalizers, and he only had one homemade compressor that he built that went between basically the master tape and the lathe. <laughs> so all the all the volume was either done by the artist or him on those big pots. There's no sins or returns. There's no uh, inserts on that console. Yeah. So there's no way to patch anything even if you wanted to. When you really think about that, that's pretty amazing. If, if you go from being able to EQ and compress and gate every channel to not being able to do any of that, um, you'll really scratch your head, and I worked really hard. I, you know, I couldn't just start doing it day one. I had to slowly ease my way off all these extra tools we have. But you know, every time you keep your face shifting, right. and you're doing things to the audio that maybe you don't realize, when instead of reaching for a microphone or a EQ and trying to brighten like an acoustic, if you just go move that microphone an inch back or an inch to the left or closer to the what 12th fret or whatever, you can get that beautiful, bright acoustic even better mm-hmm. than when you EQ. Every time I click in at EQ, I always feel like I'm losing something or I'm changing something other than what I wanted to change. And whenever I go change a microphone or move a microphone, I can get that a lot better. So to, no, no matter what we're doing at the studio or any studio, I kind of treat it in that sun way of getting all the microphones perfectly as best I can where I like them, where everything sounds killer. And then if I need to accentuate a little thing here or there, I'll do that. Now, I do like filters a lot. The most thing you'll probably see in the console is a filter, like rolling off anything below 100 hertz or something. Right. If I'm trying to control stuff, but at Sun, since it's all live in one room, you know, the vocal mic's also the drum mic, it's also the upright bass mic, it's also the electric guitar kind of room mic. So you can't really get in there and carve stuff without changing the overall image. I'm a big face coherency nut. I want all my stuff to be perfect in mono or in stereo. So, you know, EQing doing those things can really kind of take that away. So, yeah, it's all about mics, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the short answer. Right. So you were talking about this band called the Sheepdogs that you kind of played a little snippet of on the panel, and you were telling the story that they they thought you were kind of crazy and wanted to record straight to two-track. But you kind of have this cool way of instilling confidence in that band to get that great performance. you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I played the Sheepdog, which is a big, loud rock band from Canada. And they're huge just music buffs and fans, and so they're excited to be at Sun. So I... I decided to take kind of advantage of that by talking into going live to the two-track tape machine, which they're pretty excited about going to tape, but going to two-track, they're probably a little scared. And the, the main thing they were scared about was no headphones uh, because, you know, hearing yourself is kind of a big deal and hearing everybody else is, a, is very important. Right. I bet what I used that session was just a little speaker, a big monitor, like an old Altec 604 or something in the corner. And I put a little bit of the vocal back in the room. Now, I don't do too much because that's kind of my threshold for them to know how loud they can get. So the vocal mic's also, like I said, picking up the drums. So the more you're pumping the vocal back in the room, you're pumping drums and stuff back in the room. But I think people are scared of that. But I think when you realize how much you can put back in the room without it picking up on the other mics, depending on how you place them, you can get a really great performance because the artist is kind of pushing a little bit extra for volume and for because they can't hear it so sensitively in their ears. Right. So they're kind of going, they're a little bit more aggressive sometimes, a little bit more. I find I get a little more emotion out of them doing those kind of things. When they first do that, whenever you go in a room, whether it's Sun or Abbey Road, 
if you're doing something like that and you're, you can't hear, it's not like the room sounds amazing because you're just worried about how you sound the whole time. What I did that night was I added some crazy tape delays and a plate reverb and a couple other little tricks I have. And when they came in and they heard how cool it sounded and how like the tape echo was triggering off the vocal, but also the snare drum and kind of making this really kind of moody thing that we kind of captured, mm-hmm. they got really into it. And then we got it, I think, in the next take. Cool. Um, but you have to distill that confidence in them because if the whole time, if they're not, if they can't hear themselves and they don't think it's going to sound good, you're never going to get that take. So, and like they, they, in a time before, they've come in and I've done all those kind of crazy effects and they go, that's not what we wanted at all. <laughs> and it's kind of like, oh shit. And we kind of start back over and, and, and figure out, you know, everyone's different. Every artist is different. So, do you remember a specific time when you had thought you were getting something really cool and then the band just hated it? And what, oh, what did you yeah. do then? Uh, you kick them out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I mean, that happens sometimes during mixing, certainly, but tracking, I had a band come in and I did, I did like a, um, when the levee breaks, there's a little front room at Sun that's got really cool. It's got almost it's almost like an echo chamber, but it was an office for the lady who worked up front at the time. And I'll put a mic in there, and I'll put and, and get like a when the levee breaks kind of drum sound, or I'll put like a amp in there for the guitar, sending the guitar out of the vocal, or, or just little tricks like that. Yep. Um, and I did something, I don't remember the specifics, but I did something along those lines that had a really crazy echo. And they liked it, but they couldn't decide how much of it they liked, so it kept going like, could you bring that down just a little bit? Could you bring that down? Just to the point where you didn't even really hear it anymore. There's some point where it's like, you know, I'm not saying have your effects super loud and take over the song. Right. But if if you, I just basically told him if we if we keep bringing this down, we should just get rid of it because it, it was supposed to be creating a a mood or a feel in the thing, and now we're just kind of like it's barely there because we're scared of it. So <laughs> we should probably get rid of it at that point. But you know the thing is, I'm super patient, and it does not hurt my feelings at all if you don't like the same crazy sounds I like. I'm more than happy to do whatever they want. So we just kind of you know took two steps back and figured out more what they wanted. And once we got it, we started rolling again. For them, it wasn't that big of a deal because it was only like, you know, we're only like 30 minutes into the session. They come in, it sounds really great. It's just not what they wanted. So as long as they're confident in the engineer, mm-hmm. which they, which luckily they didn't lose all hope in me, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we were able to correct and keep going on real quick. If you lose the trust and the confidence of the artist, then you might as well call it a night. Right. Uh, yeah, he can't. He can't get a good performance. You can't coax a great performance out of somebody that doesn't trust you anymore. Yeah, exactly. Or they don't think they're going to get anything good, and blah 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 blah. So, um, look, it's happened. I can't remember when the last time it's happened, but I, like I was saying, the panel. It's little. I, I live in my own little world because it's some studio. Just a tad different than anything else, or a lot different, really. Well, yeah, I mean, I can get away. I think I have a little bit of free reign to get away with certain things more because it's sun, which I take full advantage of. <laughs> That's good. So, any other ways you've coaxed a great performance out of a musician? Well, what's your kind of go-to psychological trick? Making someone laugh, uh, whether it's a a girl you're trying to date or whatever, making someone laugh and being just a really open person will get you a long ways. And being a great listener, you know, I, I have a tendency to talk too much, but in the studio, I'm pretty quiet because I'm trying to listen to all the different personalities going on and see who's like, is someone not happy? Is someone fighting with someone? You know, trying to just 
keep track of the whole situation because you need to do that as an engineer. It's not just focusing on the singer. It's focused on is the bass player out there pressuring the singer? Is the drummer getting too antsy? Is the singer noticing that? And that's what's making him feel rushed. There's a whole lot that goes into it. And it's knowing when to be in the background and knowing when to be up front. It took a long time, but I think it's something I got good about knowing when to disappear and knowing when to step aside. You don't always judge it right, obviously, and things mess up, but humor is a really good technique in the studio. I think you need to figure out your artist, the clients, way up front. You know, I might have like a filthy joke I tell a dirty rock band one night, but if I've got a Christian band the next night, I'm not going to say that same joke. While I'm miking up the band, that's when I'm asking them, where are you from? Trying to get in their headspace a little. Yeah. And once you figure out their personalities, then you can kind of go from there. Um, but you can't just project everything you feel on everybody all the time. I certainly don't bring up politics ever during a focus <laughs> session. Yeah. But yeah, I think laughter gets a long way. And just being, if you're not a very good social person, then this probably isn't the gig for you, you right. know? Yeah, you need to be able to talk to people. Yeah, you really do. Empathize and such. And, and here's the crazy thing, knowing when to get them to empathize for you. And, and I, you don't ever talk about your problems or plan a session, but if you know how to bring up a story or something that gets them onto your level or something, right. you know, or gets them closer to you, you know, then go for it. It's, it's, it's something, I don't know, I don't know how you really teach it. Right. The engineer I learned from James Lott was really great at, about being an open, warm person that people really thought highly of. And here's what I think people get lost in. It's not even in the studio. When I watched Neil Capolino just talking to fans at the Potluck Conference, or Andrew Sheps, mm-hmm. how he handles stuff and, and talks to all kinds of the personalities that we meet at Potluck, you can learn from something from those guys just watching them order food at a restaurant. <laughs> you know, It sounds crazy, but that applies to everything in the studio. It's all the same. Cool. I wanted to backtrack a little bit because I was fascinated by the whole no headphone things in yeah. the studio. And Isn't that crazy? Yeah, no, it's crazy, but it's also, it seems like an answer to me as well, because I'm in a band and I have a singer and I do the harmonies and I have a really hard time recording the harmonies as overdubs because uh-huh. there's just something that doesn't happen when you don't have both of us singing to each other at the same time. There's this lack of energy. When you don't, because there's two vocals, they're playing as one instrument when they're singing to each other. I played at the Casitas, and I played a couple songs in the, the Cloud Microphone Casita, and we just played live. And then we played at another Casita, and he wanted to overdub my vocals after. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But at the same time, I thought, well, I know it's going to go downhill from here, because <laughs> I know I'm just not going to be able to do the same harmonies like as well. And she's not going to give the same performance if because I'm not going to be singing with her at the same time. Yeah. So, so I'm just wondering if you had any sessions with kind of dual singers that have given you challenges like this. Oh, I mean, there's tons of challenges when you're operating a predominantly tube studio. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to tell us on the vocal panel, you know, like you, you, you have a, just by listening to you, you have a mental block now when you do overdub your vocal harmony because you feel like it's not as good a performance like you you already know so you're already kind of putting a lid on what you can do overdubbing a harmony Mm -hmm. right and so the engineer's job is to try and if you've got to do that to try and get you out of that mindset because you've already done that just to yourself already and that's the thing with vocals that a lot of people don't understand is 
no one likes the sound of their own voice. I can't sing a note, and I get pissed when I hear my voice going like, all right, rolling. <laughs> the of a song. I, I can't stand how it sounds. To imagine someone basically singing their heart out, not just singing, but singing like lyrics about their father dying or their heart getting broken. or right. I'm horrified hearing my vocal just on a count-off or sing rolling. I'd be horrified if someone read my diary out loud, even though I don't have one, you know, or just my inner thoughts out loud or, or my text or whatever. So to sing that with your own voice of stuff that's embarrassing or, you know, hard for you to do, you can't have enough, uh, be sens- uh, sensitive enough for these singers. But when you get them in a performance, the, the thing I like about the no headphones and the going live thing is I, I think people are, are really lazy now. We don't retain information anymore because we can just Google or Wikipedia at any point. Mm-hmm. I'm a stickler for this stuff. I can't record myself because I will sit there and I will punch the living crap out of that guitar take or whatever until it doesn't sound like I'll, I'll just slide that note over and I'll just go back and whatever. Right. Um, I can't do it. I can't I can't record myself. And I think and it, it doesn't have to be this way because we have unlimited undos and we can do all the stuff with Pro Tools and stuff. But I don't think they put enough pressure on getting it that quickly or, or really trying hard certain times because of I've only got this one track to do it or I've only got this one chance to do it or the whole band's writing on this. Yeah. And there's a pressure in there, but also there's a relief in there mm-hmm. because you're all in it together as opposed to separately. So when I get a whole band in there and they're all live, yeah, the guitar player is going to mess up once or twice. We all laugh about it. And then the singer might say, like, come on, guys, this is hard for me to do. You guys have volume controls, and I'm kind of throwing my throat out. And then a lot of times we'll get in the, in the taker next because then everyone kind of like stops laughing and realizes what's all on the line. And there's a pressure in there, but at the same time, you know, it's a group effort at that point as opposed to you all alone on your own with everything riding on you. Right. And then being able to chop it up later and stuff. I I really enjoy that way of working. Like I said, it doesn't always work for everybody. Not everybody's interested in that method. The main thing, too, is if you guys are interested in no headphones or recording with a lot of limitations, with this kind of method, you do have to kind of push back a little bit. You have to be a little resistant at first because the first thing they're going to go and say is, I can't hear myself well enough. Mm -hmm. Because they're used to being being able to hear every single little thing. And so you have to push for just a minute and go, listen, let, just, let's try it. It sounded really good. Let's just try it once or twice more, see if we can get because we're getting something really cool here performance-wise. And then oftentimes they open, warm up to it, and then you get something really cool. But you got to know when to stop kind of being resistant and quickly go, okay, let's switch to headphones because you certainly want them to call you again. You can't really teach it or not. It's just something you got to kind of feel as you're going. Did I even answer your question or did I talk about something else? No, I mean, that's, that, totally, <laughs> that totally makes sense. Well, you know, it's funny. I have guys that come in the studio that play everything, you know, and they just want to do their whole thing. And basically all I am is just a, at that point, I'm just like a button pusher. I'll put mics up on the drums. They'll record them and they'll go, okay, now I'm going to do bass. And I just get a bass sounding good. Then they do the bass and they do the guitars. And they're not really asking me questions or feeding off of me. Uh I'm just kind of a means to an end. You know, I'm more than happy to do that. But for me... I'm the same way whether I'm songwriting, I'm playing guitar, doing hand claps on a song, or producing an artist, or engineering. I really need to be able to feed off each other. And that's what I like about live recording is I'm playing the console as an instrument just like the band's out there playing. Mm -hmm. It's live to mono. So if I slip on the old rotary knob or if I do something wrong, I've ruined the song just as much as if some guy plays a half step off. 
Right. Um, but when we all get it, we all get together, and it's just a great team thing. I play guitar at home a little bit, but I don't ever come up with anything cool, and I never come up with cool songs at home. But the minute I sit down with one of my musician buddies, uh, two minutes in, we might have like co- three cool licks and half a song, just because. <laughs> and he may not even be singing anything; he might just be reading a book and just pop up his head and go, oh, that's cool. Yeah. But there's something inspiring to me about having someone else there to feed off of. And I just can't do it. I've tried to sit at home and record demos and I'll get out a click track and I'll try and record a guitar and then I'll try and do it. And I, about five minutes in, I just punching it to death and I'm not doing anything cool and I just walk away because I can't do it. Right. Right. But if someone else is there just to go, hey, man, that's – I think everyone really needs someone just to go, hey, man, that's great or that's cool or someone to tell you no – is a big, I think uh, whatever everyone certainly needs that. Yeah. But yeah, like the collaboration effort is is so powerful. What I do is I write songs and then I write something I think is, you know, not terrible but not anywhere near good. And then mm-hmm. I take it to my singer and I just basically tell her to here make this into gold, and she usually does, which is great. Yeah. Because she's way better at singing than I am, and she modifies my melodies to make make the song even better. So it's very valuable to have a teammate of some sort. Oh, certainly, and I, and you've probably seen this working with bands, but every band I work with in the studio, ninety nine percent of them are all great. But every band, there's always one person in the band that you immediately connect with. Yep. And I'm sure you've noticed the same. I was talking to Vance and Andrew and Neil about this. It's like, you know, like it might be they're all they all might be great. You might be close to all of them. Like the sheepdogs, like they're all great guys. I had fun with all of them, but Ewan and I, and it wasn't like we sat there and hung out more than I hung out with all the other guys. We just, we talked a little bit about a guitar or an old soul record or something, and we automatically had that connection. Yeah. And when he left, we've, we've kept in touch ever since then. And I think every band, there's just the one guy that you as an engineer or producer really hit home with, and they're always in the control room and they're always, you know, hanging out or doing whatever during the session. Yeah, um, and that's one of the things I really love. Cool. If you could go back ten years and give yourself one solid piece of advice, what would it be? Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> Hell, I don't know. <laughs> I, I would say for all the young engineers out there and stuff, I know we all have cool toys and stuff like this old tube console. Don't worry about the gear so much. A lot of the great records were made without a lot of great gear. If you want to record a tape but don't have a tape machine, to get those old sounds, it's not because they were cut to tape. It's because they had the limitations of what the track of the tape was, which was they had two tracks or four tracks or eight tracks. I had a rockabilly guy the other day who wanted to do a record with me. He asked me to send him some samples of some stuff I did. I sent him a whole bunch of different things. And there's two records he really liked. He was like, I really like these records. I love the analog tape sound. But I was like, no, those are actually done on Pro Tools <laughs> with like eight tracks. But I just limited myself in the band to a few tracks and I I did not quantize I did not if I spliced I spliced everybody together like you would on a tape machine mm-hmm. I treat pro tools as a tool but I treat it just like I would treat a tape machine or anything and, and all the sounds you want to get it's not necessarily a piece of gear but it's more a philosophy so if there's someone that you really like whether it's Sam Phillips or Jim Stewart or Chips Moman or Willie Mitchell or George Martin, read about them, look at sessions, look at how they did stuff, you know, soak your, there's more to this than going on gear sluts and seeing what's the new compressor. It's, uh, there's a lot of history involved. There's a lot of, um, just 
woodshedding, you know? Right. Try try micing a drum kit. Try and get a great drum sound with two microphones instead of 16. You'll actually, I think, you'll be happier later on in life with you, that you are when you if you come into a weird room situation and stuff like that. You just take start taking stuff away from you. Don't try and do a whole session without EQing, just moving mics or changing mics. If you start doing that, you'll get really good. Um, you'll get really good a lot quicker. Cool. Um, and that's when people notice when you're when you're when you're making it look easy and simple and like you're not doing anything and it comes in there and sounds great. I think you know that's that's the ultimate goal. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Matt, for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome. I hope it was okay, man. I just I ramble like a mother. <laughs> no worries.